Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. All right, great to have you with me. It's 10.05, time to look closer at the Ukraine conflict and its impact on markets. We know that the conflict has been causing knock-on effects globally. Look at the cost of oil and the distribution of oil greatly affected. Conflict also weakening Russia and Ukraine's financial markets. Their fears of a potential supply disruption in oil markets uh, beyond Russia and Ukraine, and that's seen crude prices surge above $100 for the first time since 20. So in the span of just a few days, the global economic outlook has darkened. Uh, There's an interesting quote that a friend sent me. You know, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen and certainly feels like that. The price of oil, natural gas and other staples spiking earlier this week at the same time under the weight of supply chains laboring from the pandemic. Uh, The United States, Europe and their allies tightening the screws on Russia's financial transactions, freezing billions of dollars of the central bank assets that are held abroad. But when you step back and take a big picture look, Russia's been a relatively minor player in the global economy. It really just accounts for 1.7% of the world's total output, despite its enormous energy exports. So against that backdrop, you know, how could the Ukraine conflict influence markets? And what does this mean for your portfolio? We put that question to Cheng Chai Sen. He is head of investment at Provident. Good morning, Chai Sen. Morning, Michelle. All right. Help us understand the mood amongst markets. And what is your take on how the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is likely to affect markets, not just in the immediate term, but in the longer term? That's the question really on everybody's minds right now, I guess. So, you know, in the short term, some of the things you mentioned are definitely going to be uh, critical for the market. I think the conflict is going to definitely exacerbate some supply chain challenges, uh, which have already been strained due to the pandemic. So uh, the very obvious one that we see is energy. We see oil prices going past 100. Uh, But beyond that, there are other key things that Ukraine and Russia do export that are likely to be affected. So they export neon gas and palladium, which are key components for semiconductor manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Any shortage of this is likely to cause the already very short supply semiconductors mm-hmm. to be you know, even more scarce uh, going into 2022. So that's likely to push up prices, uh, cause a certain amount of inflation, also cause a certain amount of uh, supply chain disruption for companies that rely on semiconductors for their products, such as, uh, for example, the car companies, which have been really struggling to manufacture cars because they're short of chips. And the other one, which is also very important, for the world is really agriculture. Ukraine is a huge exporter of agriculture. The land in Ukraine, especially towards the eastern part, is very, very fertile. They grow a lot of wheat. So more critically, it can also in the short term be a big driver for food inflation. So these are some of the bigger short-term challenges that you know the market is likely to face and have to digest. And as the events unfold and you know the impact of the conflict and the sanctions are more understood, then maybe we will eventually see the markets come down and start to price in the full effect of the conflict. Longer term, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, in terms of total GDP, uh, Russia and Ukraine are just about 2% of the world's GDP. So as tragic and very unfortunate as the conflict is, overall in the big picture of the economy, it might not have a huge long-term impact because it is not a huge part of the global economy. So if you think about 
uh, over the long term, you know, companies, the stock market's made up of many different companies and companies are really just going to be valued on their earnings and their future cash flows. And so a 2% hit to the overall, you know, addressable growth or market for all these companies is not going to be a big long-term kind of impact. So, you know, once the conflict is well understood by the markets and people know how to price in all the various effects of uh, the supply chain disruptions and the sanctions, we are likely to see you know, the markets calm down and, and I guess go back to focusing on companies' earnings. Great takes there, especially on the point of agriculture, because, you know, some people might relate Ukraine to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. But really, uh, agriculture is one of the most important components for Ukraine, making it a a valuable asset to Russia and beyond. If you look at financial markets and the reaction that we have seen, so stocks falling, energy, commodity prices spiking, investors switching into safe haven assets like U.S. bonds, what exactly are you telling your clients? How is Provident advising clients in light of the volatility brought about by the conflict? Well, we are advising our clients um, who are already invested in very diversified uh, global portfolios Mm -hmm. to basically stay invested and uh, to look at it as an opportunity to uh, start investing if they if they feel like you know they haven't invested enough or if they do need to invest more to reach to reach their wealth goals because if if prices are falling it always means that the future returns will be higher because you're buying at a lower price so it's uh, actually probably a good time to think about when you want to start investing and uh, if you have already invested, if your portfolio is globally diversified, if you're holding a very, very diversified basket of good companies, it is not a good time to sell. It's probably the best time to just stay invested and ride it out because these are events that will impact the market in the shorter term. But, you know, in the longer term, if you're holding on to very diversified stocks and over time, there is a earnings premium, there is a return premium that accrues to holding risky assets. And so to benefit from that, you have to be invested. When the market rebounds, we can't time that perfectly. Mm -hmm. So if you miss the good days, if you miss uh, being in the market when it rebounds, you're going to miss a large part of the gains. So that's the advice we're giving our clients right now. Okay, so a lot of investors jittery about how the invasion is going to affect financial markets, but also, uh, you know, jittery about what's going to happen with the Fed and interest rates. On the one hand, you have expectations of a rise in interest rates in March. On the other hand, you see some traders abandoning bets for that half point increase in March. How do you think the Ukraine war, is it likely to deflect the Fed from you know, interest rate rises? Um, I don't think uh, it's really going to halt the interest rate rises. I think uh, the challenge facing the Fed is that interest rates are currently zero. Their balance sheet is uh, very, very large. Uh, It's expanded tremendously. And inflation is running high. And in fact, this conflict is likely to add to the inflation. So it is quite likely that the Fed will have to start raising rates and I think they're still probably going to raise rates in March. In fact, the Fed recently just sort of came out to say just a few days after the war started that they still don't see any sort of reason to change that economic outlook. And since they have guided for rate hikes, that also means that they don't see any reason to stop their rate hikes. So they're likely to start in March. Biden's giving his State of the Union address and he says Putin is now more isolated from the world than ever. Um, depending, of course, on how this conflict plays out, do you think there are any possible knock-on effects on the Fed's decision to raise interest rates whatsoever? 
it would have to be a big hit to the U.S. economy such that they see growth uh, slowing so much that inflation pressures also ease. That would, you know, probably give the Fed pause with regards to raising interest rates. Right. But I think right now, if you see the data, all the data that's been released prior to the conflict starting, of course, they have seen the employment numbers look strong. Consumers have continued to spend. There is continued uh, demand from consumers. So it shows that the economy is strong. And uh, one of the challenges is uh, really supply because of the pandemic uh, causing supply chain constraints. Therefore, you know, prices are going up because demand is strong, but there's not enough supply. So the, really the only way to cool that demand is to raise interest rates to give spenders something else to do with their money. And like, hey, interest rates are up. You know, instead of spending it, we can save. It makes more sense to save the money and get some return on it rather than spend it. So, mm-hmm. um, and also just, you know, in general, uh, running off that balance sheet to reduce the money supply. All this will help slow down or cool the inflation. So at this point, it's hard to see the Fed uh, not raising rates soon. I think the question is really how much and how fast they will raise rates, which is probably the bigger uncertainty that you know all the market participants and investors are really trying to grapple with because yeah. some Fed chairs are suggesting a stronger stance on inflation and to raise rates by 50 basis points immediately in March. Uh, others are opting for a more gradual 25 basis points at each meeting. I think that is the challenge. This is only a guess because mm-hmm. you know I'm not in the Fed, but it's likely that they might be cautious uh, given the conflict and they would probably, if they had been thinking about 50 basis points at the start, they probably, would, yeah. Yeah, they probably will, will probably just do a 25 basis points just, you know, because of the added uncertainty caused by the war right now. Okay, I want to pick up on a point that you mentioned and it's more about the rate of the hike and the increase, you know, the proportion of the increase. Biden has yet in his State of the Union address to address inflation uh, in the U.S., but Goldman Sachs says it sees core inflation running at about 3.7% through the end of this year. So quite an upgrade from a previous forecast of 3.1%. And Goldman has raised its expectations for inflation and interest rate increases, basically saying they see 11 rate hikes through 2023. Your take on that? It really would depend on uh, the inflation uh, number you're seeing. So, I mean, if Goldman is expecting an inflation of 3.7%, then raising rates 11 times, I, I assume it's about 25 basis points each time, would bring them to around 3-odd percent kind of Fed funds rate. So, yeah, that would be needed if the inflation is running that high. I mean, the long-term Fed uh, inflation target is really 2%. And I think right now, the break-evens are showing something like 2.5%. So mm-hmm. we are already above that. But of course, uh, 3.7% is way beyond that, even 2.5%. So, so yes, I mean, uh, it, it really depends on the data. So they're not wrong. If inflation is really running at that high rate and, and going to be at that high rate long term, then it is not unrealistic to think that we need to hike the rates to somewhere around 3% just to combat the inflation. But uh, of course, the Fed is guided by data. So, I mean, the things uh, investors will all be watching would be, you know, what's the, what's the inflation rate? Is it going to be above or below, you know, the expectations of the economists, uh, jobs data? 
uh, is, the, is the unemployment rate going to stay low and persistently low? So if the economy continues to stay low at uh, near full employment, that also stokes a bit of inflation, especially wage inflation, and largely payrolls, non-farm payrolls, uh, how much higher are wages going? Because if they also do see a sort of a wage price spiral happening, that will also drive inflation, and that would definitely mean that the Fed would need to raise rates more. So really, it's all about the data mm. and what's going to happen in the future. I don't know if we, if we will really see that many rate hikes, but I'm pretty sure we will see definitely some rate hikes because right. uh, inflation is definitely uh, fairly high and the Fed is likely to act. Cheng Chai Sun is my guest today, Head of Investment at Provident. Let's turn our attention now to Hong Kong, uh, where we're seeing some really uh, jittery investors. Uh, you know, we are expecting in Hong Kong to see uh, a lockdown. Maybe we have no idea. I think there's la- a lack of clarity as to how long this lockdown could stretch for. But are you seeing bets against Hong Kong reach new extremes in financial markets, Jason? I don't think, you know, the Hong Kong market really is uh, reacting too much just to to sort of the, the lockdown. Uh, there are also new record infections. And then we have seen heavy selling since the Ukraine crisis. Yeah, I think I think in general, you know, the selling really is driven by uh, just the sentiment around the initial conflict. Hong Kong is where a lot of large emerging market firms are based. And so therefore, the conflict, Russia being part of uh, emerging markets, is likely mm-hmm. to have driven some, you know, outflow from emerging market assets. And therefore, it's just a knock-on effect. If you're selling, you know, your emerging market fund, it's likely to have some kind of allocation to Hong Kong stocks because uh, there are a lot of Chinese listed firms on Hong Kong exchange. And so that's probably driving some of the, the downward pressure. You add to that a bit of uncertainty around uh, the lockdown and uh, the Hong Kong economy at this point. So that's also likely to have caused a bit more. But I think it has slowed that selling. I think yesterday the HSI was up and uh, today today seems uh, reasonably stable. It was definitely a bit of a reaction in tandem with the conflict, but I think longer term, it really depends on how this COVID situation there plays out and the ability to get the outbreak under control and then get the economy back on track. So it's really more about the handling of COVID within Hong Kong and maybe the veering away from the very strict zero COVID policy. Is that going to be looked at as a positive? I think Hong Kong is pretty determined to carry on with their zero COVID policy at this point um, mm. that we have not heard or seen anything that, that is to the contrary. Uh, but, you know, if, if they can get it under control, the outbreak there under control in hopefully one or two months, then they could reopen the economy and that's likely to uh, at least prompt some kind of recovery in the stock market there. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. As always, Ching Chai Sen, Head of Investment at Provident. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.